invite you to open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and then Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. This morning we're coming to the end of our series on Luke's Gospel. We started three years ago, and now 87 sermons later we come to the end. It's been a great, great study of just our Lord Jesus Christ, and so I'm, uh, I'm sorrowful that we're ending it this morning. I've enjoyed Luke a great deal. But this morning we're looking at the ascension of Christ Jesus into, uh, into heaven and all that that means for us. And so we're going to look at Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, and then we're going to jump and see Luke um, in the book of Acts and the account of the ascension there. Let's give our attention first then to Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Then let's go to the book of Acts chapter 1. We'll read the first 11 verses. Luke writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's ask the Lord's blessing this morning. God in heaven, we thank you that Jesus Christ is a teacher, and we need to be taught. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has been sent as a guide, and he is able to break open the bread of life to us this morning. And to give us uh, the understanding so that we can discern spiritual things and see Christ Jesus revealed in the pages of Scripture. And so, Lord, we ask that uh, that the Spirit would do that work in this place, in our lives, uh, in this text this morning, as as we sit at the feet of our Lord and learn from Him. Lord, I pray that you would use this time to build us up in the faith. And again, Lord, maybe for some of us to bring us to a true faith, in Jesus Christ, and we pray it in his name, amen. I don't need to uh, 
to tell you, uh, but I will anyway. But uh, the Ascension Day is uh, probably the most overlooked, undervalued uh, event in the life-death ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we've just celebrated Christmas, and uh, we, in a few uh, months, will be looking and celebrating Easter, and there's a lot uh, of commotion about that. It's become a, a sort of a cultural national holidays, both of them. But uh, you, don't, um, you don't really do much for Ascension Day. If, uh, when's the last time you had an Ascension Day party or someone gave you a happy Ascension Day Hallmark card? They don't make them. At least I've never seen one. They ought to. Uh, Ascension Day... For the uh, writers of the New Testament, for the, for the apostles, Ascension Day and, and all that it portends, all that uh, it promises and assures us the things that it uh, assures us of, it's, it's the foundation for their life and specifically for their, uh, their joy. It's very interesting as we start uh, looking at our text tonight, if you, this morning, if you remember when Jesus first told them he was going to leave them, back in John um, he, I think he's 16, says, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be going away. I'm going back to the Father. And uh, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, don't be afraid. Why does Jesus say that? Because their hearts are devastated. They can't imagine that Jesus is going to leave them. And Jesus says, you know the way. And, and, and Philip says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can you say uh, you know the way? There, there's just despair gloom. Um, how, how on earth do they move on without Jesus? He's the whole point of the ministry. Right? They were men who followed Jesus. That's what they did. Um, Jesus was the one who opened the scriptures to them and spoke the words of God and cast out demons and made blind people see and raised dead people to life. Uh, Jesus was the one who was going to ascend and take the throne of Israel and uh, lead it to its greatness. So what sense does anything uh, make if Jesus leaves? You see, there's, they, they simply can't fathom how that fits into the picture. They don't have a category for Jesus leaving. And so they're filled with sorrow and sadness and despair. And, and yet now, when the event actually takes place, what we read of is joy, exceeding joy, great joy. So what happened? How do you, how do you move from this great sadness and, and uh, despair and now Jesus leaves and there's rejoicing. Well, the answer in short is that they came to realize through the teaching of Jesus that his leaving was not an ending, but a glorious beginning. They, they, they came to understand that Jesus had accomplished the work of redemption in his life and death and resurrection. But, but that accomplishment has to be applied that accomplishment has to be now brought to a lost world and that Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit who was now going to apply all the, the uh, things that he has accomplished to lost sinners as God is gathering his elect and building his church until um, Jesus Christ comes and, and it ushers us into a new heaven and a new earth. And so the disciples are getting the sense that the, the best is yet to come. 
that Jesus' life had been for the purpose of the ministry of the gospel. Boys and girls, imagine uh, that your parents, for Christmas maybe, bought uh, the whole family a, a trip down to Disneyland, and they, they showed you nice pictures of Disneyland and all the rides you could take and uh, the funny creatures you could hang out with there. And uh, they put that all up on the, maybe on the, on the shelf, and there's the dates. You know when you're going, there's the airline tickets. It's all bought, the, the hotel, it's all taken care of. But you never really actually take the trip, right? The tickets sit there, and the date comes, and the date goes, and you say, well, aren't we supposed to be down in Disneyland? And your parents say, no, no, we just, we just bought the tickets. We were never intending actually on going. But you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you, why would you buy the tickets and not, and not take the ride? Well, you see, the disciples are coming to understand that Jesus has... Um, accomplish something. But now it's time to take the ride. Now it's time to see all that Christ has accomplished, worked out in the real life, in, in the real world, as Jesus, King Jesus, now is gathering the fruit of his labors. And they get to be a part of it. They're going to be in the front row. They're going to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands accomplishing this great, glorious uh, drama of redemption as God gathers his children through the ministry of the gospel. And so it's not the end. It's the beginning. And Jesus Christ has ascended to the throne of heaven so that the Spirit can be poured out and the ministry now can, can burst into this world. Tim Keller uh, uses the illustration. He says, in his in his life and death and resurrection, uh, Jesus had assembled a marvelous gospel weapon for the glory of God. And in his ascension to the right hand of God and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, he detonated the weapon. And the, the shock waves are now reverberating throughout the world with constant power and ever-increasing scope all around the globe. It just points out that there are more born-again Christians walking this, uh, this planet today than there have ever been in the history of the world. There are more Christians today than there have ever been. And the number is just continuing to grow. We we tend to look around us and we see a church in decline. Maybe we pay attention to Europe and we see a church that is, has declined uh, dramatically. Well, in other parts of the world, it's exploding. I just read this week that they believe there's more Christians worshiping this morning in China than there are here in America. And it is growing rapidly. The gospel is exploding all because of the work of our Lord Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of God. And so this morning, I want to, um, I want to say, just maybe look at the ascension seriously again. Maybe you haven't done this for a long time. And what does it really benefit us that Jesus Christ has left and gone to the right hand of the Father? Well, first let's look at the event itself. Jesus rising into heaven. Notice Luke tells the story twice. Uh, he tells it at the end of the gospel narrative. And then again, he tells it in Acts 1. So it closes the account of the gospel narrative, and it's the opening scene for the church age. It's the final act of Christ here on earth, and in a sense, the opening act of Christ uh, from the throne of heaven. Uh, Acts is going to be what Jesus continues to do here on earth 
Um, and, and so Luke tells it. I, I, I wrote the gospel to say all that Jesus began to do, and now I'm going to write the book of Acts. And the assumption there is that it's all that Christ continues to do by his spirit through the gospel message. As you know, the ascension takes place 40 days following the resurrection. Uh, Jesus is He's not living with the disciples as he once did, but he appears from time to time and he teaches them. He opens up the scriptures. They have a, they have a Bible study. And Jesus is showing them the full truth of who he is and what he's accomplished from the scripture. And there they see the necessity of his suffering. They'd never seen it before. That it was necessary for the son to suffer. They saw the significance of his resurrection. What it accomplished. They saw the inevitability of his ascension and the rightness of it. They see it all in scripture. So that when they go into the world, they're not simply going to testify to what they saw. But they're going to testify to the, the fact that what they saw corresponds with exactly what God himself had promised. This is what the scriptures have said. And uh, that's going to be their, their witness. That's going to be their testimony. And God's going to use that to gather in his children. And now as Jesus uh, gathers his disciples there at the Mount of Olives, a place that they knew very well, it's a poignant scene. It's a parting scene. Jesus is leaving, physically leaving. This is the last time these men will see Jesus on this earth. They will never again talk with him as they had been so accustomed to doing. They will not see him perform any miracles. They won't be taught by him as they had been in the past. They won't just get to enjoy his company around a, a campfire or a meal. Uh, all of that is coming to an end. They will never experience the physical presence of Jesus again in this life. That's, that's poignant. So why aren't there any tears? I think you would expect tears. Jesus is their dear friend. Uh, we find tears in other instances of parting. For example, in Acts 20, when uh, Paul meets with the, Ephes uh, the uh, elders of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, and he tells them, I know that I will I'll never see your face again. And we read there, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Well, that's what you'd expect. They loved the Apostle Paul. He'd ministered there uh, for three years. He'd brought them to faith. And now he says, I'm not, you'll never see me again. So it's, it makes sense to us there'd be weeping and sorrow. But why not now? Why not for the disciples? In fact, why does Luke tell us that there was great joy? This word that keeps showing up in the Gospels. They're very happy, the disciples are. Why? Well, there are reasons. And let's look at that secondly. Reasons for joy. One reason is that they've received a magnificent calling. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. I'm, I'm going to use you uh, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Uh, these are the guys, remember, that had just failed Jesus in the most profound, dramatic, awful, embarrassing way. 
Men who had, uh, whatever their promises to, to be faithful and to be there for him, uh, when push came to shove and the, sh- the soldiers showed up, they were gone. And yet Jesus now comes to them in all their ignorance, all the things that they don't get and don't understand, and entrusts the gospel mission to them and promises them the Holy Spirit's power. They've had taste of this before when Jesus sent out the 12 in Luke 9 and the 72 in Luke 10. Um, this, the Spirit went with them and they were able to do amazing things. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So they've tasted this before. There's anticipation. They, they, um, they know Jesus and they love Jesus and they cannot imagine a better way to spend the rest of their life than than being uh, instruments in Jesus' hands to accomplish his saving purposes. That's a good life. That's a life worth living. And Jesus has has explained to them they're going to do that at the expense of their life. They're going to to, uh, die doing this. And because they were doing this, well, what a great purpose. What What a great reason to live and to, to, to be that sold out and committed because they know Christ and they're called by Christ and this is the greatest possible thing in the world to be um, witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think one of the things that plagues our lives so often is a lack of that sense of purpose, a lack of that sense of clarity. Why are we here? What, do, what are we here to do? What, what is the meaning behind sort of the American lifestyle? Because it doesn't, it doesn't it, it's fun, it's, there's a lot of recreation, there's a lot of diversion, but, but what's the, the root cause and purpose for it all? What's the thing that, that is worth living for and dying for? And that can easily get lost in our busy, hectic uh, schedules. Well, let's let the ascension of Jesus Christ remind us. Uh, King Jesus uh, is ruling that 2018 isn't isn't coming about just because it's the next year on the calendar. And uh, as long as the earth keeps rotating, the sun is just going to happen. No, 2018 is going to happen by the sovereign ordaining plan and purpose of God. And he has uh, saving purposes in mind in 2018 and, and uh, purposes to build up his church into spiritual maturity and, and likeness to Jesus Christ. And those are glorious, eternal things. Unlike everything else in our life, those things will not pass away. And every single person who's a Christian is called to participate in that activity. We're not just bystanders. We're not onlookers. We're not the audience just sort of sitting there and, and, and watching the thing unfold. We are the participants. We're the co-workers, the co-laborers. We, we are those who've been now named as Christians. And we're to live then as people who believe that Knowing Christ and following Christ and obeying Christ and serving Christ and worshiping Christ and anticipating his return is the most important thing in all the world. That will saturate your life with significance and meaning, no matter how mundane your life might seem to be. When you're teaching your little children about the Lord and you're teaching them the songs and you're helping them memorize their scripture or catechisms, you're doing, you're doing something that has eternal significance. 
When you're, when you're just working your job and yet you're doing so prayerfully and in faith and looking for opportunities to love people in the name of Jesus Christ and, and, and invite them into your life and maybe invite them to church. But you're just, you're living your life. But it's a meaningful life. It's a significant life. It's saturated with purpose as you live it for the glory of God and for His purposes. So the disciples are excited about their calling in the world. We can be excited about our calling in the world. And then the disciples are rejoicing because of the blessing. Luke tells us that as Jesus ascended, he was blessing them. He lifted up his hands. You can see it. This is, the, this is what God told Aaron to do. Go out after the sacrifice has been made. The prayers have been offered. I want you to go out and face the congregation. I want you to raise your hands, and I want you to bless them. Put my blessing on them. This isn't Aaron wishing good things for them. This is Aaron pronouncing God's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Those are God's words. And Jesus now, having accomplished the sacrifice blesses the congregation. And, and it's very possible that Jesus being God and Lord uses the first person and now I, the Lord, bless you. I, your Savior, promise to keep you. Through all the days and all the years ahead, I will, I will shine my face upon you. I will lift up my countenance continually upon you and I give you my peace. Not as the world gives, but I give you my peace, a peace that never ends, a peace that abounds even in trial and heartache and suffering, a peace that surpasses understanding. And, and as Jesus is blessing them, you see, then he ascends. And so the, the disciples are left with this shower of blessing. They're left with this, this incredible goodness of God flowing down upon their heads. You see, these aren't the words of men. These are the words of King Jesus, the words of God promising his presence, promising his favor, promising all the riches of Christ's accomplishment. And so, and so it's, it's, the, it's the promise of, of justification and sanctification and adoption and uh, ultimate glorification. Who will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? I mean, just think of what it means to be blessed by God. You see, if God is for us, who, who can be against us? That's what Paul says. If, if the gospel is true and it's true for you, if, if God himself is, is showering these blessings on you, well, there, there, there's no lack. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack anything. I shall not want. And so you see, this blessing of Christ... It, they believe it. They think he means it. And so, and so as they go back to Jerusalem, they're, they're celebrating and rejoicing. They're eagerly anticipating the life they're going to live under the benediction of God. But they're also rejoicing in the heavenly coronation of their precious, precious Jesus. Uh, when Jesus, if you remember, he meets these two grieving disciples, Clopas and very possibly his wife Mary. Uh, this is Resurrection Sunday, and they're making their way back to Emmaus, and they're grieving because 
Jesus has died. And, and Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And notice Jesus doesn't simply say, suffer these things and enter into glory. He says, he must enter into his glory. The glory that belongs to him. The glory that is rightfully his due. Both by virtue of his divine nature and his triumph as the second Adam who came and succeeded where the first Adam had failed, the one who loved the Lord as God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength and always loved his neighbor as himself and who fought that battle with the devil there in the wilderness in all of his life and and in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross as, um, as it seems that God has abandoned him and yet Jesus obeys and, and says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And we don't even, we, don't, we, we can't, we, we don't sense the weight of that. The angels must sense it more just because they're in the presence of God. They know what holiness looks like. But, 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 but the weight of all that Christ accomplished, the value of it, the worth of it, the beauty of it, the splendor and magnificence of it, you see it, It is essential, it's necessary that Christ must enter into his glory. You cannot do what Jesus has done for the purpose that Christ has has done it and not be exalted at the right hand of God. Philippians chapter 2, therefore the Father exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name. There's, There's glory, you see, in the ascension and it's a necessary glory. It must take place this way. He has to be given the name above every name. All authority and power given to him. Not because the father owes it in some sense, but because it is right. It's right. And he's accomplished the father's purpose and the father is delighted to honor his son and give him the glory that is rightfully his. And the disciples see it and what can you do except celebrate? Any sadness they might have had at his departure is is overwhelmed by their their exaltation. Their their Savior, their friend, Jesus, their Lord, is ascending to the throne of heaven. Remember they kept pestering him about, when when are you going to take the throne? Can we be on the right? Can we be on the left? I mean, and what they're thinking is this little throne, it probably didn't even exist anymore, but somewhere in Jerusalem that Jesus would establish his rule in Israel. And he'd be the king of Israel, and that that kingship would just slowly expand, and and Israel would be great. And, And all that gets blown away... As they see their Jesus ascending to the right hand of God the Father to take the throne of the universe. That's exciting stuff. And so they they love the idea of Jesus taking his throne. They don't fully understand it. They ask a silly question in Acts chapter 1. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still not getting it. One commentator said uh, nearly every word in that question uh, is wrong. 
But Jesus doesn't, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't rebuke them in the sense of, are you kidding me? Stop the presses. How can I leave now? You, you guys still don't understand. He doesn't say that. He says, it's not yours to know. But I tell you what, what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, the Holy Spirit is going to come. You guys just wait. The Spirit's going to come. He's going to teach you these things. And you're going to be my witnesses. And Jesus, you see, I've heard people say, I've listened to a few sermons on this text, and I've heard people say, you know, he trusts them. And I'm thinking, no, he doesn't trust them. He's much smarter than that. He trusts the Spirit who's going to teach them and lead them and guide them in the truth. And in spite of their stumbling and bumbling and they're not getting it, Jesus is absolutely confident that this is going to be a success because the Holy Spirit of God himself is going to come and indwell them and lead them and guide them. And the results are obvious. It's through their Holy Spirit witness and testimony the world is turned upside down. And so the disciples, as they're watching Jesus go, they, they have this keen sense. They're not being left as orphans. Remember Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. To be, an orphan is defined by loss. Loss of parent. Loss of family. Loss of community. Loss of identity. Loss of security and significance. And they're not losing any of those things. They're not losing a parent. They're gaining a heavenly father. They've gained a heavenly father who knows them and loves them. They're gaining a family, a Christian community of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's when you, when you become a Christian, you find that you suddenly have family you, more than you'd ever imagined having a family. And your own family, and, and in parts of the world, this is absolutely the case. Your own family will disown you and may even try to put you to death. But you, when you become a Christian, well, you gain a world of family. And you gain significance and security. Your life isn't meaningless, being spent meaninglessly on you. It's, it's now towards a cause, a purpose, the name of God and, and the purpose of Christ Jesus. You're a Christian. You have an identity. And you are secure, more secure as no one ever than the children of the Father. Because Jesus is on his throne. Do you, do you know what the favorite Old Testament verse for the apostles? What was their favorite Old Testament verse if you'd asked any of the apostles? Well, I don't know this for certain, but what I, get, what I can tell you is that the verse most often quoted in the New Testament, the Old Testament verse most often quoted in the New Testament is Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. They love that verse. Because they're in a world that hates them. And there's, and there's family members that despise them. And there's governments that are opposed to them. And, and, and they're going to lose their life. And they're going to see suffering and, and persecution and the loss of things. And you see, this verse reminds them of the, the way things really are. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. The one who's running this universe is a victor, and his name is Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Peter's first sermon that he ever preached, this is at the middle of it, quotes from Psalm 110, and then he says to these 
uh, these Israelite men who have gathered for the Passover. He says, let all Israel know this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Deal with it. And they're struck to the heart. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. Be baptized for the washing away of your sins. You see, that was their confidence. That was their joy as they went into a persecuting world. That King Jesus was on the throne and he knew them and he loved them and he was watching over them. He was smiling upon them. And so it was going to be okay. It was going to be, it was going to be glorious. I, I want you to just imagine if, you, if uh, your brother ended up somehow uh, becoming the president of the United States. Boys and girls, wouldn't that be cool? If your brother became, or sister, it's a free country, <clears throat> became the president of the United States and then asked you to be part of the cabinet. Think of the significance of that event. Think of the security of that event. No matter what happens, the president's going to be taken care of and he's going to take care of those who are the closest to him. There are special escape routes and bunkers, right, if it all goes bad. But the significance and the security that belongs to you, through no doing of your own, you just happen to be a sibling. Well, friend, if you're a Christian, that's true of you a thousand, thousand times. You are a child of God, and your brother has ascended to the throne, to the right hand. He's, he's taken his place there, and he rules the world by his authority and by the power that belongs to him. And he's made you a member of the cabinet. Do you sense why the disciples suddenly became fearless? It wasn't just because they knew they were right, that the resurrection assured them that Jesus was who he said he was. It, it was that, but I think it's, they became fearless because they finally accepted Jesus in his lordship, in his sovereign reign and rule. If he's on the throne of heaven and every atom must obey his will... We're going to be okay. What can man do to us? So they condemn us. So what? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, ascended to the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. Who cares what Caesar says? The world and the flesh and the devil are going to wage war against you, but Jesus Christ is there on the throne, interceding, praying, Appearing in the presence of God on our behalf makes them fearless. It should make us fearless. What reason do we have to doubt when they had faith? Why are we afraid if King Jesus is on the throne? And then Jesus leaves, and we'll end with this, with a promise. He's coming back. The angels tell the disciples, he's coming back. Angels must think we're awfully slow. Do you, do you, do you know how many times in the, in the Bible you find them coming and saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Resurrection morning, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Remember, he, he told you he was going to rise from the dead. 
Ascension Day, uh, men of Galilee, why, do you, why are you standing here looking up into heaven? He's, he's gone. He, remember he said, I'm going to the Father? Yeah, he, he's there now. He's in heaven. And you have work to do. So, um, so go get to it. But remember, he is coming back. This Jesus that you've seen is going to come back just as you saw him go. He's not left the world to abandon it, but to rule and reign over it and direct it to its ordained end. It's a great thing to remember as we start 2018. Jesus is ordaining all things to their appointed end, and that means you too. Your life is, is not at, uh, at the whim of fate or, mercy, or, or chance in 2018. It's, it's in the hands of a loving Heavenly Father and a reigning King Jesus who bought you with his own body and blood. And so our response should be what their response was, worship, blessing God. It's interesting that Luke's gospel begins and ends in the temple. Uh, it begins with old Zechariah, remember? Uh, childless Zechariah in the temple offering the sacrifice and the angel of God appears to him and promises a child who's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He doesn't believe it. Well, now you have the disciples once again at the temple. The sacrifice has been made. The, ter- the curtain has been torn. It's been a re-altered temple. The way into the holy place is now open, and they go back and bless God. It means that they're just thanking God and praising God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. You you just sense that the horizon of their life is full of joy and worship and eager anticipation. Their life feels rich and full and their future glows with potential. Is that how you feel today? As you look forward to another year? Full of worship and eager anticipation? Does your life feel full and rich and Bursting with potential? Or do you just feel tired and sad? Lots of regrets? Lots of fear, anxiety? Do you find yourself spontaneously blessing God? Just, just you can't help it. You, you see the beauty. I, I was in the office and I looked out the window this week and I just went, praise God. It was so beautiful. Now, I can do that right now. February is going to be a little more difficult. <laughs> and there's all kinds of things where I, we ought to be just going, praise God. Right? And yet we grumble and we complain. We get scared. You see, we need a category for Christian sadness. Paul says, a sorrowful yet always rejoicing Let's, let's work on that in 2018. Willing to be sorrowful for the things that are wrong, things that are broken, the sin that remains, the, the, uh, the loved ones that are struggling. Let's, let's be willing to grieve with those who grieve. But let's, let's, let's work on the always rejoicing part. Always rejoicing. 
And the only way that's going to happen, friends, is if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the, the Jesus who actually is reigning, not, not just a Jesus of the Sunday school stories, a Jesus of your childhood, but a Jesus who today and in every day of 2018 is actually on the throne of heaven. And it doesn't matter what President Trump does, doesn't matter what Putin does, doesn't matter what any leader in, the, in any part of the world does or does not do, King Jesus reigns. Doesn't matter what happens to the economy. There is nothing to fear in 2018 as long as Jesus is on the throne. Might you lose your life this year? Yes, you might. It's very possible that some of us lose our life this year. But the Bible doesn't talk about it as losing your life. It talks about it as gaining eternity. Gaining the presence of God. We don't live for this world. We live for our King who's going to reign over your life and my life until we see him once face to face. And everything that happens between now and then, Romans 8.28 says, works for good for those who love God and be called according to his purpose. Tim Keller says, Romans 8.28 comes to you compliments of the, re- of the ascension. King Jesus reigns to make sure it's happened. So let's remember that Jesus has not left us as orphans. We're not left to our own. The work that he's begun in you, he will carry on until it is completed. He promised to do that. The creation that he has, um, he has made is going to one day be remade gloriously new. It's going to happen. And this Jesus, who loved you and gave his life for you, this Jesus is coming again for you. He's not going to leave you. Let's believe it. Let's trust it. Let's live like it's true. Amen. God in heaven, thank you that Jesus reigns as king. Lord, forgive us for all the ways we forget it and all the ways we deny it and reject it in unbelief. All the ways we act as though it were not true. And yet, Lord God, thank you that your word teaches us and reminds us your spirit will bring this to our mind this year. Uh, Every time, Lord, we need to have our heads lifted up and to be encouraged, I pray that you give us this word. King Jesus reigns. And all things work according to his purpose for our good and his glory. And he's coming again. So Lord, I pray to encourage our faith and and build us up and strengthen us and fill us with joyful worship all the days ahead until we stand in his presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.